Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, uh, your favourite science radio program or podcast if you listen to us via podcast, which I know many people do. Shout out to all the podcast listeners out there. Uh, joining me today is Catriona. How are you, Catriona? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Um, are you ready to talk about some science with me? I am indeed, Chris. Let's do it. Cool. Well, I actually have a story to to present, um, to try and um, entertain you with, or maybe you've already heard this one and you'll know all about it. But it caught my eye. It is uh, essentially a study that found some hints to possibly how neurons, like the um, the nerve cells in our in our brains, hmm. may have evolved. Um, they found similar cells in these simple animals called placozoans. Oh, what are they? Well, I'll get into those. Okay, okay, spoilers. Um, but they're like very simple animals. <laughs> they're believed to have emerged about 800 million years ago. So it's kind of a really early sign. Now, these are not actual neurons. Mm-hmm. These animals are way too simple for that. In fact, you know, I'm kind of surprised they're called animals, but hey, whatever. <laughs> um, Look, a sponge is an animal, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I'll get into sponges. Um, but yeah, so this is not actual neurons. They don't have nerves or brains or anything like that. But this is possibly, I guess, just an indicator of, yeah, possibly how these things may have evolved, okay. which is interesting to learn. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Um, and look, not speaking to us now, but we will have a story from um, good old reliable Claire. Uh, now, I don't know if you remember, Katrina, the last week we had our annual Lost in Science Fiction episode yes. where we talk about science fiction. Yes. One of the highlights of the year for us, and uh, we couldn't fit all of it in to that show. <laughs> So, take two, or not take two, but like a, we're, we're revisiting. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, Claire will be talking about, um, I guess, one of the science fiction sort of hits of this year, the um, the show The Last of Us. Have you seen that or played the Ooh, video game? I have not, Are but you I've heard about it. what's it about? Yes. So, that'll be interesting. Yeah, so um, it's it's about zombie fungus, basically, <laughs> or fungus zombies. So, yeah, Clara's going to look at that, what that's actually based on, and whether we should be afraid, I guess. Ooh, stay tuned. Yeah, so stay tuned for that, for, like, um, simple animals with primitive brains and... And how fungi may or may not take over. <laughs> taking over our brains, yeah. Okay, so on with the show. So, Catriona, you'd be a bit of an expert on evolution, wouldn't you? I wouldn't say expert. I know a bit about it. I mean, come on, you're you're a, you're a biologist, <laughs> aren't you? And broad broad term, broad term biologist, I think. Okay, well, so I know there are a lot of biologists out there, but like evolution is is basic to biology. It's kind of hmm. the, the thing behind it, is my understanding. I mean, I'm speaking as a non-biologist here. <laughs> it's an important part, yeah. Yeah, but like I've been thinking about evolution lately and how it doesn't necessarily I guess work the way people might have in their brains that it works like they're the general person not not biologist I'm saying so like okay. for example we often talk about use the language say that something is designed a certain way hmm. now we don't mean unless you're a creationist you probably don't mean it's actually literally designed by some sort of higher power you just mean that it kind of looks like it has a very specific purpose 
Yeah. And yeah. And a specific a design. Yeah. And it's something, yeah, well, a design is very hard to get away from these words. Yeah. But look, you know, we're, I think we're comfortable with using it as a metaphor, but it, I think it can also still be misleading because it suggests that things are, again, designed in a certain way and, say, a particular organ or a particular mechanism might have this very unique purpose. When, in fact, these things have evolved over millions of years, generally from things that had different purposes or worked in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. So as an example of that... Um, the human brain, right? The human brain um, is often called the most complex thing in the known universe. Now, <laughs> perhaps not surprising that humans would call it that. Yeah, I'm thinking that's very human-centric. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. Um, but like, if, if you're going to take that position, then if there's ever a case of something appearing to have like a complex design, then that's, that's the case for it. So then understanding how something like that, something complicated like that could have evolved is a huge challenge. Uh, and even like the way single neurons perhaps work or have evolved, that can be hard to understand. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, based on this recent work that I'm going to talk about today, that it, um, these some very simple animals called placozoans have cells that are not themselves actually neurons, but have many genetic similarities, and they perform a similar kind of role. But it's quite they're quite different, but they have kind of the beginnings of this kind of neuron function kind of like a precursor or is it too like uh, you can't really say it's the precursor it's just like the very simple basic form well actually if you want to get into like these misconceptions then what does precursor even mean in this context if these things i mean these things have been around for 800 million years Mm. can we say this is a precursor are they ever going to evolve something further are they happy with their little niche Mm. see this language is the language we use is kind of is kind of um uh, a trap itself but look that's a very good question and that's something that um, is yet to be figured out but it's kind of strongly suggesting that they're kind of a precursor okay but anyway so what are these things so placozoans like I said they're tiny they're simple animals um, they're kind of like little flat lumps blobs <laughs> of cells about like a millimeter across maybe about a thousand cells in them or so oh wow that's quite small yeah and they live in shallow seas. Um, they've been found kind of all over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. In Australia, I think they've been observed in the Great Barrier Reef. But they were first discovered in an Austrian aquarium in 1883. Hmm. And um, for a long time, there was just only a single species that were, they were considered to be part of this whole phylum. Um, Trichoplax adherens, because they were these little flat things that adhered to the side of the aquarium. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they were probably overlooked for a while because they didn't seem terribly important. Uh, now yeah, they're having the whole phylum to themselves, like that's pretty big because phylum's like the second kind of biggest classification, right? Like second broadest. Well, I guess because they're they're animals, but they're mm. they're not one of the part of the one of the other phyla. Yeah. So your main groups of animals, um, you've got uh, you've got these placozoans. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, the sponges, which you mentioned, <laughs> the um, periphera, I think is what they are. Uh, you've got the, uh, pronouncing these is, is difficult, um, <laughs> tenophores, which are comb jellies. <laughs> and so they're kind of, they look a bit like jellyfish. Um, they move by cilia, little tiny of kind of little 
hairs, I suppose Hair, you describe yeah. yeah. And so that gives them their name because they have kind mm. of looks like a comb that they use to swim with. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Nidarians. This, I'm pronouncing it weird because it starts with a C. It's got a silent C. So mm-hmm. Tenafors also has a silent C at the beginning. Nidarians has a silent C before the N. Um, they are your jellyfish and anemones and coral polyps, those sort of things. And then you have a whole bunch of other phyla that in bilateria, they're the um, animals with bilateral symmetry. And that's where we, mm-hmm. we sit. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so these ones, they are a separate phylum. They don't fit in one of the other ones. Like I said, they're, they're very tiny. They have cilia themselves, though. They have, like, um, little cilia cells on their top and bottom, and they do have a distinct top and bottom. Mm-hmm. There's different cells on the top of them and on the bottom, um, and different cells in the middle as well. And they, yeah, they move around with their cilia, and they basically engulf food that they come across. So, so they're like Pac-Man. Of, uh, well, they're kind of like this moving blob that rolls <laughs> over things. It kind of forms a little kind of, I don't know, they call it a temporary stomach, essentially, uh-huh. if it finds a bit of food. It kind of surrounds it and then digests it. Although apparently um, they can also digest single-celled organisms through their top surface as well. So if something lands on top of them, they can kind of suck hmm. it in side and then eat it via like... Um, phagocytes, you know, the mm. um, the cells but that eat other cells. To me, those kinds of cells are Pac-Man. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, so they, they move around like this, and apparently they control their movement with these uh, peptides. Um, their peptides are kind of protein fragments, I suppose you could call them. Mm-hmm. Um, these ones are called neuropeptides, and they're emitted by certain cells called peptidergic cells. And these peptides, basically emitted by these specific cells, control the action of the other cells, basically control the movement. So it kind of responds, these cells respond to some sort of stimulus in the environment. They emit the peptides, which then controls the way other things work. So this um, recent work um, by people in Barcelona mapped the genes in these cells. So basically mapped genes across the whole organism. And they showed that the genes in these peptidergic cells um, were very similar to to um, the genes used in neurons in the nerve cells in animals like us. Mm-hmm. And neurons, of course, they are generally elongated cells. They have they join at these junctions called synapses, and they you they jump send signals across the gap using neurotransmitters using chemicals that are neurotransmitters. So. Essentially, that's what these cells are doing just in a very primitive form. Um, They are emitting these neuropeptides, which are similar to neurotransmitters. Um, They just don't actually have the synapses to be able to pass them from one type of one of these cells to the other. They're basically just just emitters of the neuropeptides, not receivers of them. Right. But the, um, the genes and the way that they work are very similar to those that are found in bilateria, like ourselves, and Mm -hmm. in the Nidaria, which are your jellyfish. Hmm. But they're different to the genes that you find in the tenophores, which are the comb jellies, even though they themselves have their own kind of neural networks and things. They have these called neural nets. So they kind of have their mm-hmm. own kind of primitive nervous system as well. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting that they use different genes and different kind of, yeah, genetic structure to hmm. what we do, what other jellyfish do, and also what these very, very primitive Placozoans 
Yes. Mm. Um, I should point out, this is not, when I was looking up more about placozoans, it's not the only kind of neural type thing that they have. So they also have this thing in the middle of them called the fiber synctium, which is kind of this fluid filled space, large fluid filled space in the middle of the placozoan. It kind of, it can, it's what it uses to sort of help it change its shape. So they, it kind of works a bit like a, a muscle cell or muscle fibers. Um, but it also has these little joints in it, which again, look quite similar to synapses. They have um, large concentrations of ions, like electrically mm-hmm. charged calcium uh, atoms. And they also have indications they may possibly have some neurotransmitter type chemicals similar to those found in the nidarians, the jellyfish. Mm-hmm. So it seems so like... kind of like a, an in-between. Yeah, it's kind of like got little bits in the in these placosomes they use for different purposes again mm. that are similar to what we have um us higher animals have <laughs> in our nervous systems so it's kind of again the framework is being there the basic framework is there, it's just not being used as a nervous system um so look the interesting thing here i guess is apart from it being kind of a a precursor because Again, these things evolved about 800 million years ago. It's believed the the jellyfish are believed to have emerged about 650 million years ago. So you're talking about mm-hmm. over 100 million years later that the actual kind of proper neurons are believed to have emerged. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a long time before that. But the fact that they're different to those other kinds of jellyfish, the comb jellies, mm. indicates that either something has changed in between those ones or perhaps they're not related and that the nerves, the neurons have evolved twice in different ways. Oh, that's an interesting thought. It is. Because that kind of implies that some sort of convergent evolution going on. Yeah. Like, oh, it's handy to have these things that are kind of like neurons. Yeah, Let's well, evolve I, them. <laughs> I guess that's the thing. So you've got these, I guess the placozoans, again, they've been around 100 million years. They use these these cells, these peptides, for their own purposes. Mm. And they're doing just fine with them. So they're quite useful to have. And so then it makes sense that if you want to get more complicated, you might then repurpose that into something more sophisticated, which then eventually becomes a whole nervous system and a whole brain like we have. Yes, because we're very sophisticated. We are. Well, (laughs) I feel I am. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to judge you there. But like, yeah, look, it is an exciting idea. I mean, it's, you know, I suppose if you had, say, completely wildly speculation here, you had another planet, perhaps the animals mm. there um, would evolve a similar kind of thing if this is such a, an attractive thing to have in your... Um, yeah. And you have the, 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 the reason, the time and space to evolve it. Mm, like um, not even another planet, but like, you know, there, there are particular moons that seem to have hydrothermal vents that are kind of like what we have in our oceans and what earth would have had like when life started to evolve so exactly mm. so yeah it's an intriguing idea i mean again though there's the i guess the other common misconception if with um, evolution is that it has a direction that we are mm. for instance we are the sophisticated kind of end product of evolution <laughs> yeah. i mean We're these, these placozoans have been around for 800 million years they seem to be doing quite well mm. um uh, yeah, again, reading up on this, I had saw some one paper that was talking about the nervous systems in jellyfish and saying how they seem to be like, you know, quite limited in what they can do. Have they reached a kind of a dead end? But again, they've been around for hundreds, of millions, hundreds of millions of years. They've been very resilient through all kinds of climatic changes that have killed off 
other other species, other whole lineages of, of animals. So these simple life forms can last a long time. They can be extraordinarily evolutionarily successful, even if we look mm. at them and think they're quite primitive. Mm. They they do their job, and that's really all evolution requires of you is to yeah. to do your job. To do yeah, to just survive. Just survive and, and then reproduce. <laughs> maybe that's something that we can all take away from that. Yes. <laughs> What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, Stu, Chris... This week, I am taking us back to the fungi zombie epic of 2023, starring Pedro Pascal. It is, of course, The Last of Us. Have you, have either of you seen it? Oh, yeah. I've seen some of it. Um, Some of it. Yeah, yeah. Enough to know it's an adaptation of of a video game, though, right? Which yeah. was also called The Last of Us. I mean, that I video game where they um where they're fighting the the mushrooms. Um, Donkey Kong, isn't it? Like all <laughs> Mario Brothers. Mario. That's Super, Mario. Kart. Super Mario yeah. World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super Mario World. It's a me. Um. Um. No, I mean, no. yeah, I, 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 you could pick up that it was from a video game. The way the story kind of. Uh, progresses sort of, in yeah. side missions all the time. It, there's a lot of side missions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great there's, fun though. There's a lot of sort of like first player action. <laughs> like you, you can really sort of get down to the um, nuts and bolts of the games. Like, oh, this that that'd actually be quite fun to play. I kept, I kept, I kept um, fighting like health packs, like medi packs, and things, and they pulled up their, their life. And... <laughs> but for those who um, haven't seen it. Um, the main premise of the show, it's a sort of zombie apocalypse where overnight human society dis, um, descends into a dystopian shambles when a mind-controlling fungi known as cordyceps gets into our food chain and starts turning ordinary folks like you and I into terrifying, biting monsters and sometimes even worse um, clickers, which have these massive mushrooms growing out of their heads and um, can't see but can hear very well. Uh, and they all share a common fungal sensory understanding, which is even more terrifying. So if you alert um, one of the uh, fungi zombies um, to your presence, then the rest of them come running. It's pretty scary. Um, it's pretty sci-fi. But what's even scarier is that this game and the TV show, it was all inspired, it is all inspired from a real-life fungus. And one that you've probably seen if you've ever seen the original Planet Earth series. Um, it's David, one of the early David Ambers, maybe 2006. Uh, incredible documentary. Totally incredible. Uh, and, and that documentary is the exact place that the makers of the game the creative geniuses behind the last of us that's where they were first inspired that's where the kernel of an idea first came from it was planet earth the spore of an idea what's that the spore of an idea (laughs) so they were just they were just sitting around watching tv 
trying to work out how we're going to come up with a good video game. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we should all watch more nature documentaries (laughs) because good things happen. Did their their first game involve like lions chasing down wildebeest or something like that? (laughs) Well, you know, the same people um, directed Chernobyl. So they're really into sort of like, you know, taking inspiration from some of the sort of uh, large scientific um, what ifs or, you know, um, yeah, tragedies and disasters um, that could be and have been. Uh, but just to go back to David Attenborough for a second, because this for me was quite formative as well. As, as, as well. Um, I remember it clear as day watching Planet Earth and seeing it's just this innocent ant just comes on the screen and David takes you into the jungle and, you know, it's just going about its business. But you know something's not quite right when David tells you that the ant is giving the telltale signs it has been infected with a mind-controlling fungi. And then it is all on. You know the music's amping up. Things are getting weird Um, And it's a real descent into terror in three minutes. We see the ant's nervous system be taken over by the parasite. It starts moving upwards towards the highest branches to position itself in preparation for sporing. Oh, my gosh. It then fixes its jaw, its mandibles, onto a leaf and surrenders to the fungi. So that's when it, well, dies. I use it in loose sort of air quotes. But over the next three weeks, uh, the, f- the fruiting body of the fungi starts to sprout and fruit out of the ant's head. And you see it in this, David, in planet Earth. It comes out of its head. It takes three weeks and then it releases the spores onto all the unsuspecting ants below. Honestly, re-watch that. It is absolutely incredible. It is bone-chillingly scary scarier than, you know, any wildebeest being taken down um, by a large predator. It is, it's scarier than it has any right to be and I think that's what the filmmakers saw when, um, when they, you know, started thinking about turning this into a TV series and a, and a game. But the ant doesn't, like, like, run around biting other ants, does it? Like, it doesn't, <laughs> and they don't, like... No, and you know what? It's true, it's true. But um, what's even more, like, scary is the other ants know that something's up and they will take that ant that's been um, infected and they take it as far away from the nest as possible and leave it there. So they know if an ant has been infected and they will do everything that they can to keep that ant the furthest away from the nest as 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 possible so no the ant doesn't go around and you know bite other ants but even just being in the general proximity is sort of um scary enough well i guess that's the other thing with that like so in like a because the last of us even though it's based on the function it is a zombie story so it follows the zombie rules with you know oh. running around biting this sort of thing but mm-hmm. you can kill the zombies in mm. in that sort of thing whereas if they kill the ant the fungus is still going to grow Mm. Yeah. So yeah. you know they can cut yeah. off its head, or whatever, like you do with a zombie. But then you've got this basically this still infected carcass that's going to just throw mushrooms. Why go take the the zombie ant away? Scary, isn't it? It's yeah. very scary. Um, and you know, 
Oh, obviously, when you think about um, some sort of parasitic fungus that's going to take over your brain, um, you think about could it do that? You know, should we be afraid of a cordyceps evolving to be able to um, parasitize us and make us do their bidding? Um, and there are thousands of different types of cordyceps, or as they are now known, Ophiocordyceps, and they parasitize different insect species. And as David Attenborough says, they keep insect populations in check in the jungle. So the more numerous the insect, the more likely it is to uh, be intercepted by cordyceps and sort of keep everything in balance. So I thought that was a sort of rosy view of a um, terrifying paras- parasite in the jungle. Is there any um, species we could think of that's overpopulating this planet at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> but if, I mean, if you are, if you're lying awake afraid of maybe this fungi getting out of hand and or evolving somehow um, to start preying or parasitizing humans, there is a big reason that it parasitizes insects rather than humans and it's all got to do with our body temperature so as warm-blooded mammals our body temperature is too high uh, for most fungi to survive in fact a 2009 study looked at four uh, almost about 5,000 different fungal strains from 100 around 150 genera so lots of diversity in there and found that most cannot grow at body temperature uh, and, you know, our body temperature really is one of the best defences that we have against the threat of fungi. Um, now, in The Last of Us, they do address this and say, well, you know, climate change, we're in a warming climate, that's going to put selection pressure on the cordyceps fungi. They're going to, uh, you know, cordyceps is going to start selecting for thermal resistance. Therefore, they're going to evolve a way to get into humans and, to, and into zombie land. And look. I see that it's a it, it, it's a clever, clever narrative device for sure, um, but as we know from the real world, you know climate change it's happening incredibly fast, and uh, we also know it is happening too fast for many um, and most species to be able to evolve to a warmer climate. So um, that's true for vertebrates, for plants, and yes, fungi as well. So although it might be Changing climate, um, it's actually changing a little bit too too quickly. It's much more likely that cordyceps is going, going to be um, uh, it 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 might change the environment for the worse, and they might be eradicated instead or become extinct. Having said all that, though, don't get too complacent. Don't get cocky about our highly evolved antifungal defenses. I will leave you um, with a couple of thoughts that may not be as terrifying as human zombie parasites, but present a more um, realistic risk. And that is pretty much that every crop that humanity depends on is threatened by fungal pathogen. So we're talking rice, we're talking wheat, we're talking corn. And researchers today, uh, they're most concerned about the rise of fungi, which are resistant to antifungal drugs. So there you go. Um, it's not going to be the mind-controlling fungi that get us. It'll be the ones that eat our food, guys. Don't worry about it. Um, but I do uh, encourage. Look, what what I am encouraged by is an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with Dee Carter, and um, her she's a uh, microbiologist, and her group identified antifungal properties from, if you can remember, 
the honey ant. So there it is. Maybe the solution to, you know, the ants, the zombie um, cordyceps and the zombie ants could in fact be the ant itself. So um, there you go. Ain't nature terrifying and amazing. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.